Some of you may not be aware, but this week in Blowing Rock, there is a modern miracle taking place. For the first time since 2012, there will be no orange traffic barrels on the 321 widening project. Amen. Amen. After six years and almost $75 million, they claim to be almost finished. Now compare that to our story from Nehemiah. Nehemiah followed his vision. He traveled 800 miles. He overcame opposition and criticism and discouragement and, and all other kinds of distractions. He cobbled together a group of 44 groups of people and in less than two months, 52 days, he had them constructing a wall around the old city of Jerusalem, a, a wall that went a mile and a half around the old city. And in less than two months, coming from a foreign country, motivating a group, they had completed half of their tasks. The wall was seven and a half, almost eight feet, all the way around Jerusalem. Fifty-two days. It's incredible when you think about it. Incredible when you think about how things are done today. I mean, if it was done today in a church, we, we would barely have time to get a group together to study how we were going to build a wall, much less build a wall. We'd get a group or committee together, and they would decide whether or not we needed a wall, whether or not we should build a wall, and then they would talk about how we would build a wall, and then they would bring proposals back, and then there would be discussion, and then there would be a vote, and then we'd go back and forth, and we'd talk about the opposition that we're facing, and how are we going to address them, and then we would finally decide how we were going to build the wall. But in Nehemiah's time, they were following a vision from God, and all it took was obedience, and God did the unimaginable. A wall that had been destroyed, that had been torn to rubble for 170 years was now beginning to rise from its ashes. How in the world did Nehemiah accomplish this? How in the world did Nehemiah take what many thought to be impossible, what many had believed to be out of the realm of, of reality, and make it real? Well, we find that in Nehemiah chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there, Nehemiah chapter 3. These people that Nehemiah had constructing the wall, they had no training. They were not construction workers. They hadn't been told what to do or how to do it. They, they didn't have any understanding. As a matter of fact, for the last 170 years, most of them just walked right by, never even making a glance at the torn down wall. But Nehemiah came and cast a vision, and that vision became their goal. Now, a lot of people skip over Nehemiah chapter 3. If you have looked at Nehemiah chapter 3, it reads like a Hebrew phone book. It's full of names that you can't pronounce. It's, all, it's like reading the genealogies in Matthew. You get to started and you start finding names that you can't pronounce and you just kind of give up. And so a lot of people skip over it. But there are some incredible principles here that I want to draw your attention to. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm just going to, to point out some things because I would butcher their names. But I want you to see Nehemiah's plan for making the impossible a reality. How Nehemiah got these groups of people to rise up and do something that hadn't been done in 170 years. Now you need to understand, and I encourage you to go back and read chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the most detailed description we have on the layout of old Jerusalem. 
It labels where the walls are, where the gates are. And matter of fact, many modern archaeologists will use Nehemiah 3 when they begin to go dig because it's the only description we have of what the walls look like, how they were built. And so as we look at this, before we get to looking and diving into the chapter, I want to point out a couple of things, a couple of observations that jump out before we get there from what we've been talking about, following our dreams, following our goals. And the first is probably the most important you need to understand. When you are following a God-given dream, when you are following a God-given vision, you will not be able to accomplish that dream, that vision on your own. See, God doesn't give us God-given dreams and God-given vision that only we can do. He gives us dreams and visions that will require the help of others, including Him, but the help of others. Nehemiah realized that though it was his dream, he couldn't build a wall by himself. He couldn't go in, and if he tried, it would take a lot longer than two months. And so he began to enlist, and he began to to find people that had gifts and talents, and he became a master delegator. He began to put people in charge where they had giftedness and they began to jump in and take over the roles and take over the responsibilities. He, he broke down the task in manageable processes. He said, we're going to divide it by 40 and each person will have this 40 sections of 65 yards each. Sometimes our task and our vision seems so huge. Some of your visions, some of your things that you've shared with me and we've prayed about for your family and for your marriage and for your career and for your future, those dreams that God has planted in your heart that you feel bubbling up, it seems impossible. It seemed impossible when Nehemiah stood in front of him in Nehemiah chapter 2 and said, look, we're going to build this wall. I mean, how many of them said, well, who's we? Because I don't know how to build a wall. But what Nehemiah did is he, instead of saying, look, this is our task, he said, look, right here in front of your house, this 65-yard section, that's your task. You see, the way God works in our hearts and the way God works in churches is He begins to give us a little glimpse of a vision at a time, expecting us to step out on obedience. See, somebody has these big dreams. You're saying, God, I'm not seeing anything happen in that dream. It's because you're overlooking the small steps that He's opening for you to be able to fulfill that dream. We become so focused on the big task, so focused on how daunting it can be that we don't see the little doors and the little opportunities, the little walls in front of our own place. That God is saying, this is where you start with. This is how you begin. Nehemiah knew not to go and micromanage. He led. He, he went and shared with them, and then he got out of the way and let them do what God was calling them to do. And the only way you can see that happening, the only way he can get others to help, is by focusing on the common goal. What motivated these people to get out of their houses and begin to work was Nehemiah put a goal in front of them, and that goal was not the walls. That goal was to glorify God. He said, these walls are not my walls. This city is not my city. This is the holy city of God. And God is calling us to do this work so that His name will be glorified among the nations. Israel had ceased to exist for 170 years. People mocked them. Those three men that we talked about a couple of weeks ago sat on the outside from Samaria and from Arabia and they mocked the Israelites. And Nehemiah stood before them and said, they're not mocking me, they're not mocking you, they're not mocking this wall or this city, they're mocking our God. And the people got motivated because there was a common goal. You understand that what keeps us going is this idea that we have a purpose. And your purpose isn't 
necessarily to be the best husband or the best wife. That's part of it. Or be the best mom and dad or be the best employer or for us to be the best church in this community. Our purpose is to glorify God in everything we do and to extend His kingdom. He pulled them together from from all backgrounds, from all different types of uh, places in their life. They were not people that were builders. They were moms and dads and tailors and priests and farmers. and, And they worked all throughout the area. And he got them together, this diverse group, and brought them together for a common purpose. Now we call that something different today. It's called unity. And so many churches confuse unity with uniformity. And uniformity kills dreams. Unity builds dreams. See, uniformity says we all have to think alike and we all have to look alike and we all have to act alike and we all have to want the same thing. That's not unity. That's not God's will. Unity says we can all have different views. We can all have different ideas, different principles, different things that we are pursuing. But we all come together for one purpose, to glorify God. That's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talked about the body in the church being like a human body. The finger may have its own purpose and the toe may have its own purpose and your liver and your spleen and your eyes and your ears may have their own purpose. But on their own, they can't accomplish anything. You cut off a finger and go put it in a box, it doesn't get anything done. It might exist, you might can keep it alive, but it has no purpose. But when the finger gets attached to the hand, gets attached to the arm, gets attached to the body, all of a sudden it can accomplish great things. That's what unity is. Unity is this idea and principle that there is a bigger purpose and a bigger goal than my wants, my needs, and my preferences. And the Bible says that it is at a place of unity, Psalms 133. It is at that place of unity where God bestows His blessings. And I want to share with you this. God will never pour out His supernatural power on the church and on us, and on denominations, and on Christians in general, until we become united. We get so divided over such stupid things. You understand that's the enemy? That's the devil? We argue over how we worship. We argue over the carpets. We argue over whether somebody said hi to me when I was leaving the church. And we got our feelings hurt. And we get mad because so-and-so said something. And this happened in this group. And nobody asked me. And nobody invited me. Or they're not doing it the way I want it. You see, when you're focused on a common goal, all those things take back seat. Maybe they're important things. Maybe they're things that you need to deal with. What's most important is that we come together to glorify God and to see His will done in the community and in our own lives. Unity builds on difference. It doesn't separate difference. See, the beautiful thing about this is what Nehemiah did in bringing groups together from all backgrounds is they learned that they depended on one another. If I built my wall and next-door neighbor didn't build his wall, guess what happened? My wall became weaker. And so there was motivation to learn that we all need each other. We need one another to be able to see what God wants to do, to be a light in this community. We have learned to depend on one another. And the same is true in the church. See, God brings all types of backgrounds into the church. And we don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to like each other all the time. We don't even have to to be around each other all the time. But when we come together as the body, we have a united purpose. 
and you bring a gift that other people are depending on. And I've preached on that before. You recognize that when God calls you to a church, that is the place because He knows that church needs your gift. And when you're not there, that church is missing what you bring to the table. And I wonder how many times people come to the church looking for something and needing something, and the need that they have is met by the gift that you have, but you're not available or you're not there. And people leave the church without God telling them to leave the church. And, and, and I understand people get mad and get their feelings hurt and they go somewhere else down the road. But you need to recognize until God releases you from a body, you're still a part of that body. And when you're not there, when you go because you got your feelings hurt or you got mad or somebody didn't say something to you or you didn't like something that was done and God hadn't given you a release, He hasn't removed you from this body and put you in another body, you find yourself in a dangerous place like a finger in a box. And even worse is the church begins to miss out on what you brought to the table. Nehemiah recognized that for them to get the wall done, everyone had to realize that they depended on their neighbor and they depended on their friend because the only way their section was going to get built and be strong and be defensible is if they all pulled together. We need each other. The common goal is bigger than anything else that we can come up with. Now, chapter 3, I don't, I don't really... Probably one of the hardest passages I, I've looked through to try to find some key principles, because you can get lost in these names. But I really believe there's some truth here that I want to give you for just a few minutes. Some truth that I think will help you personally in following your vision, your dream, seeing the impossible become reality, but also for the church. Some principles here that we as a church, if we are going to, what we've been talking about, getting from here to there, moving to where God is calling us to, and what ministries we're supposed to do, and where we're supposed to go, that I believe these principles are vital for us to see us on that path, just as they're vital for you to be able to see God open doors in your marriage, and in your home, and in your workplace. So I'm just going to give you some words, and I'm going to point them out to you, some key words. Four key words, real easy to remember. You can write them down. You don't have to write them down. But these are principles that I think are vital. This is how Nehemiah did the impossible with God's hands. The first one we find in verse 1. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Eliashab, the high priest and his fellow priest, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its door in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Hanel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, the son of Emery, built that next to them. Now see, it sounds like he's just giving us a building order, but there's some principles there. What was the first gate and section of the wall that Nehemiah mentions here? It's the sheep's gate. Well, what was the sheep's gate? The sheep's gate in the city of Jerusalem was the gate closest to the temple. It was where they brought the sheep through for the sacrifice on the Days of Atonement. It was known as the sheep's gate because it is where the priest would go and get the sheep that had been brought for sacrifice and bring them into the temple. And by Nehemiah emphasizing this in our very first section, he's talking about our priorities. If you want to see God do the impossible in your life, the first thing that you need to examine is what's the priority of your life. For Nehemiah, it was God. Basically what he's saying here is that we've got to put God first. First and foremost in everything that we do, before they did anything else, they made sure that God had His glory because the gate that brought the sacrifice into the temple had to be finished. 
If we want to see God move in our lives, if we want to see God do things, we have got to learn to let God be our number one priority. We've got to learn to understand that the Bible teaches that we seek God and His kingdom first, and everything else follows close behind. It goes to the motivation of our hearts. Why are we pursuing this dream? And I talked some about it last week. Why are you pursuing that vision? Is it for your glory? Is it for His glory? So many churches get sidetracked because all of a sudden it becomes about their kingdom and, and their glory and their name and not His. And Christians do the same thing. We start out with the best of intentions. I, I'm going to make my marriage built on the Word of God and the truth of God. And somewhere along the way we get sidetracked and we wonder what happened. God, stop being a priority in your marriage. God, stop being a priority as a parent. God, stop being a priority in your workplace. God, stop being a priority in what was important to you. It's easy for us to get so focused on other things that we lose focus of the most important things. And when God stops being the number one priority in your life, you open yourself up for attack. When it becomes about you and it becomes about your kingdom, you lose sight of what God wants for us. It's about your priorities. I love talking to people and about church and about things. Matter of fact, I, I had a battery replaced this week in my car, and the guy that was replacing it, he asked me, what, what do you do? We were talking first, and he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He kind of looked back, because I wouldn't dress like a pastor. I didn't have a collar on or anything. He looked at me and said, you mean like a preacher? I said, yeah, like a preacher. And I began to talk and, and found he, he was raised in a Christian home and, and he was probably in his mid-30s raised in a Christian home and knew the truth and knew the way, but he hadn't been in church in 10 years. I said, why haven't you been in church? I said, you know, church isn't the most important thing. What's most important is your relationship to Jesus Christ. But you need the church and the church needs you. There's going to come a time in your life where you're going to need God's body to help you and encourage you and bless you. And he began to make all these excuses. Well... You know, I'm busy and this and that and this and that. So it's not a matter of busy, it's a matter of priorities. Because what I found is we find time to do the things that we really want to do. Is God the number one thing in your life? Your relationship to Him, giving Him glory? Do you ask yourself before you do anything, is this going to glorify God? See, if we are going to move from here to there, the priority of this church is not what Rusty wants. It's not what the deacons want. It's what God wants. It's what we are doing, giving glory to God. And, and we need to examine everything we do. You say, well, how, how is a fellowship giving glory to God? When the body of Christ, the Bible says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there also. There's something to be said for sitting around a table and eating some good covered dish fried chicken with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Last time I had some of your homemade fried chicken, I promise you, God was glorified. Okay? He was. We need to look at everything we do in our personal lives, in our relationships, and in the church and say, does this glorify God? Because if it doesn't, then we are in danger of allowing ourselves to get in the way of His glory. Because when God's at the center, when God's the one we're focused on, the most important thing for us is other people. See, when we're at the center, you know what happens in the church? It becomes about ministry and about money and about success. But when God's at the center, it's always going to be about people, loving people, ministering to people, touching people's lives, 
because that's what he was about. That's what his heart is. Not how big can we get? How many services can we do? How, how much money can we raise? Those things might seem important, but the most important thing on God's heart is you. How can we love more people? How can we love those people that we're around every day and help them understand the message of Christ? It's all about our priorities. The second word I want you to see is responsibility. And this goes to how they built. Verse 28, you don't have to turn there. It says, each one was responsible in front of his own house. See, Nehemiah was smart. He said, where do you live? And they said, I live over here by this gate. He said, well, there is a section in front of your house that's yours. Why? Why in the world would Nehemiah, do, why, why didn't he just get work groups together and say, okay, all of y'all head over here and this group you head over here? Because when it's your house and it's you that are responsible for it, you're probably going to work a little harder instead of your neighbor's house, aren't you? Don't you? Sometimes I mow my neighbor's yard when she's out of town. She works for OCC, so she's gone sometimes. And, and so I'll mow my yard. My yard's huge. And I've told you before that I believe mowing grass is of the devil. Some of you like that. You're good to that. Uh, I think it's one of those things that the bad people are going to have to do uh, after end times. I mean, I, I just, honest with you, eat celery, algebra, and mow the grass. That's it. You want to know what it's going to be like. Maybe not all at the same time. But I... I mow my grass, and, and when I mow my grass, because I'm a man, it has to be perfect, right? Even though I hated it, I mean, it's got to look right, and it's got to be weedy, and it's got to, it, because I, it reflects on me. But when I mow my neighbor's grass, I'm not as detailed. Don't look at me spiritual. You, you know what I'm talking about. You don't do it the same way. Why? Because it's my neighbor's house. It's not my house. People aren't going to drive by and go, hey, look how rusty. He messed up that yard. They look at mine. So Nehemiah said, you take responsibility for your own house and you give it everything that you got. See, sometimes our first order of ministry, the first place that God's wanting us to step out in, in, in the big picture of our dreams is in your home. Please hear me. Some of the greatest things that you'll ever do for God are the way you raise your children. It's the way your marriage reflects Jesus Christ to people around you. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to, to not just bring your kids to church. There's a whole generation of people that were drugged to church and brought to church that have dropped out of church. Why? Because they were never told why they were brought to church and drugged to church. They were never taught why it's so important to come and worship and how we need each other. This is the place that we've got to be. So many that were raised, this generation that we're, we're mourning, that we've lost, this millennial generation that's dropping out of the church, that grew up in the church. Why in the world are they dropping out? Because they went to church for the 18 years they were at home and they heard mom and dad sing the songs about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And they heard them talk about the power of God. And then they went home and they didn't see it lived out. And when they got to the place of having to decide on their own, they said, why in the world should I go? It didn't make a difference in my parents' house. Some of the first places of ministry are right in front of you. It's in your home. We've got to learn to be consistent. We've got to take responsibility. Church, you are called to take responsibility for the church. Do you understand that? It's not my church. It's your church. So many in the church today are, are willing to say, I'll just do whatever everybody else wants. No, it's your church. 
Get involved. Get, get involved serving and ministering and leading and take responsibility for what is His. Sometimes the greatest ministry opportunities we have is right in front of us. The people that God's already brought into our lives, the next door neighbors we have, our children and our grandchildren, the people we work for, the people we go to school with, the people that are in the next cubicle. You have a responsibility to them. Nehemiah said, look, the first place you start is right in front of your own house. They had the right priority. They learned to take responsibility. The third thing is they had commitment. Whether it was raining, shining, sick, or well, they worked. When one couldn't work, somebody else stepped up. They were committed to the vision and the purpose, and they were committed to one another. You know, today they tell you in church work, don't talk about commitment because it scares people off. Don't talk about commitment in your church. It scares people. It amazes me that we say we are committed to Christ, but we're not committed to His bride. We're committed to what God wants for us, but we're not committed to doing it. Committed to talking about it, but not living it. It's time that we learn what commitment means. It's time that we stand up and make ourselves committed. I find that many people don't like to be committed because then there's an expectation level that's placed on them. Had somebody that was in the church for a couple of years and, and God was really moving. He was building their marriage and they came in my office one day and said, Pastor, we're leaving the church. I said, well, why? I'm used to hearing it's because you're preaching, but they didn't say that. They said, I said, why? They said, because we just want to sit. And we feel like every week you're talking about serve. And we just, we just don't want to be committed. And I blessed them. But I thought you're never going to find a church you're happy at or it's not a church. Because the church exists for the people of God to serve. The reason we are here is to facilitate the gifts that God has given you so you can become what He's called you to be. And to do that means the first step that you've got to do is make a commitment. I'm in. I'm a part. I'm committed. That means stepping up beyond your, your place of comfort. Find a small group. Get involved in a Bible study. Get, sign up to a ministry team. Start serving. Something beyond just Sunday morning. Coming and singing songs. You know, the reality in Jerusalem was exactly in Nehemiah's time like it is today. There's no difference. People say, well, time's changing. It's no different. The same things we face in the church today that you and I face, Nehemiah faced. Some people did all the work. There's four verses. You can go back and read them. Verse 4, verse 27, verse 18, 24 describes two groups of people. They finished their wall in front of their house first. And you know what they did? They looked around to see who else wasn't finished. And they went over and began to help them. And they went over and began to help them. See, there's some people in the church that don't have to be told there's a need. They just go and do. And praise God for that. They don't have to be asked. They don't have to have somebody come and put a finger on them. When they hear that there's a need, when they sense that there's a need, they dive in and, and they go all at to see that it's accomplished, to see that it's done. They don't ask about when and how and why. They don't go and say, you know, use me if I have time. They just dove in and they start working on other sections. They didn't sit back and, and wait. They didn't look at their neighbor's wall and say, look, you're not working as hard as I am. Yours isn't complete. They went and helped. 
But then there's also some that didn't do anything. If you look in your passage, you can see that in verse 5, it, Nehemiah names names. He talks about the leadership, the nobles, who would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervisors. So they didn't want to work. They didn't want to be under somebody else's leadership. They didn't want to do it unless they were in charge. Nehemiah said, here's the group that bailed out. And in church, that's the truth. You recognize that the old saying that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, that, that's true in almost any organization. And sadly, it's true in the church. We do a little better in our church. We went through the roles and looked at things a couple of years ago, and we're about at 45%, but that's not good enough. See, everybody has to be a part. Everybody has to step up. Some work, the problem in the church is it it just doesn't seem glamorous. I mean, let's be honest, who wants to change diapers in the nursery? Right? Right? I've done my time. i got two kids. They're both 20 and older. I don't, I don't like diapers anymore. And I know when you become a grandparent, all of a sudden, oh, it's so cute. I want to, not, I'm not in that. <laughs> Some of you that are grandparents, we have a nursery sign-up that you can go and get all your diaper changing out of the way. Some things aren't glamorous, but they're vital for the church. See, we think if it's not on stage, if your name's not in the order, if you're not, then it's not important. But we don't recognize, going back to Paul's examples, that every part counts. I want you to to listen to this. Talking about all the groups. Verse 14, listen to this. The dung gate was repaired by Melijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Bethacarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Let me ask you, if you were getting assigned a gate to fix, how many of us would choose the dung gate? You know why it's called the dung gate? That's part of its name. Sheep's gate, dung gate. They bring the sheep in, they take the extra stuff out. Dung gate. I mean, I don't see that in a shirt. I, I built the dung gate, right? I mean, it's not something. But without the dung gate, guess what happens? The city starts stinking. See, there's nothing that's insignificant in the body of Christ. Nothing that's too minor because it all works together. It it all comes as part of one. And some of you say, well, I'm not willing to serve unless it's this way and this way and that way. We need people that are willing to step up and say, here's my gifts. And I don't care if anyone ever sees like we talked about last week. I just want to serve. Francis Chan says this, talking about the Dungate. Christianity is like manure. When it's spread out, it nurtures and fosters growth. When it sits in a pile for too long, it starts to stink. See, that's the beauty of unity. We all have a responsibility and we all fill it in. Commitment, priority, responsibility, and the last thing, and I'll close with this. Listen to what it says in verse 20, chapter 3. You might miss it if you read. Next to him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. He's zealously. The word for zealous there is passion. He was passionate about what he was doing. You see, if you want to see the impossible become reality, the first thing is to make sure that God is glorified in everything you do, that He is first, what He wants is first. Then you take responsibility for your family. Take responsibility for the things that are around you. Then dive in and get committed. Say, I'm doing this. This is where I'm going. Commitment takes a step of faith. And then lastly, it requires passion. And passion's not something you can work up. I know people say, well, we get excited. and we That's not passion, that's joy. Passion is something that wells up within you. 
Compassion is something that comes from seeing. Remember what I told you? From seeing the way things are and seeing the way things could be, the way things should be, the way things must be. When your vision is all about looking and saying, this is the way we are, but that's the way we could be, then there is a passion that bubbles up inside of you that propels you to say, i got to do this. We have to do this. And you want to give it everything. You ever been around passionate people? It can be exhausting, can it? But passion is contagious. You can't teach passion. You catch passion. They were excited. Why? Not because they were building a wall. Who gets excited about building a wall except engineers and wall builders, right? Nobody likes building. Why were they excited? They were serving God and they were about to give Him glory in everything that we do. You see, when you're shoveling snow off the sidewalk, when you're changing diapers in the nursery, when you're here five nights teaching vacation Bible school or preparing food for VBS, or you're here handing out programs or singing in the choir, you're not doing it for us. You're doing it for Him. And when you focus on doing it for Him, you can't help but be passionate. Gets you excited. And if it doesn't get you excited, then maybe you're not doing it for Him. The way to get over that mountain that you're facing, the way to, to get around that river that seems impossible is to develop a passion for Christ and follow at it with everything that you've got. We need more passion. We need more focus. See, church, I really believe that God is at work all around us. He's working in this church. He's working in this community. He's working in our children's ministry, in our student ministry, in our senior adults, and on Sunday and Wednesdays and Monday. I believe right now He is writing the blueprint for our future. He is beginning to lead us to help us understand how we can get from here to there. And He's doing the same thing in your life. And and just to be honest with you, we are in an incredible season of blessing right now in this church. God is blessing beyond measure. And not just in numbers and people that are coming. I'm having testimony after testimony every week of people whose lives are being changed. Marriages saved and families redeemed and prodigals coming home and people physically getting healed, spiritually getting healed, emotionally getting healed. God is at work. People are being saved. Financially this year, for no reason except for God's blessings, we finished almost 15% above the average of our giving in the last 10 years. 15%. We finished with a huge surplus. People say, why? God's blessings. Your faithfulness, God's blessings. Why is He blessing us? Because I believe we have experienced a spirit of unity when we've come back to one service. And I know that wasn't easy for some of you. I know it, wasn't a hard, it was a hard decision. I know some of you are still uncomfortable with how we do it and why we do it. But I believe stepping out in faith and saying we are going to be one body at one time, there is a blessing that has been poured out on this congregation. And some of you can feel it when you walk in here. But it's also in obedience. We've we've stepped out even where we didn't know where it was going to go. What it was going to look like. We've stepped out when God said, I want you to do this. Last October, we decided as a church, instead of our harvest day offering that we always use to bless ourselves and for some project we have, we decided that we were going to just send it all to Texas, to those who were churches that had been affected by Hurricane Harvey. We raised $25,000. And we bless five churches without asking for anything in return. And you know for a Baptist preacher to send money away, that's hard. (laughs) But in honesty, it was easy because God asked us to do it. 
we were obedient, and because of that obedience, God's blessing this church. But I think it's only the beginning. I think not only are we in a season of blessing, but I think we are about to see more than He's ever done before in this place and in your lives. But the only way that's going to happen is if we have the right priorities, take responsibility, be committed, and be passionate. Listen to me, church. When Nehemiah first glimpsed that wall, it seemed impossible. Go back and read chapter 2. He rode secretly around the wall and thought, this isn't going to happen. But Nehemiah knew a secret that you and I forget sometimes. How is never important to God. God never has a how problem. Because the Bible says God can do anything. And I can do all things through Him. The issue for us is the why. Why are we doing it? And Nehemiah knew as long as he focused on the why, God would take care of the how. You may think that dream, that vision is past you. Whatever it is that God's playing in your heart, you may think it's too high, too hard, too difficult, too far. God doesn't. Stop focusing on the how and focus on the who. Because when we start thinking about why we do it and who we're doing it for, the how it gets done becomes easy. Let's pray.